Hello, everyone. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics, where we apply God's word to philosophical thought. And we do the heavy lifting, so you can do it with us, too. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Uh, we're taking a pause, uh, depending on where we're at in, in our um, uh, Nancy Piercy book. Uh, we'll get back to that. But today we have the absolute pleasure of uh, talking to one of our fellow Kalamazooians. And uh, uh, unfortunately, because uh, we all have cooties, uh, we can't meet in person like we wanted to, but that's okay. Uh, but I want to introduce uh, Dr. Lydia McGrew, who is a widely published a published analytic philosopher, homeschooling mother, author, and wife of philosopher and apologist Tim McGrew. She received her PhD in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995. She has published extensively in the theory of knowledge, specializing in formal epistemology and its applications to the evaluation of testimony and to the philosophy of religion. She is the author of Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Consequences in the Gospel of Acts, which defends the reliability of the New Testament using a long-neglected argument from uh, incidental details, which we'll talk about, and her new book, The Mirror or the Mask, Liberating the Gospel from Literary Devices, provides further evidence for the robust historicity of the Gospels. And so we have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Dr. McGrew to our show. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Patrick and Tony. It's great yeah. to meet you guys. Me too. Um, so, so I should probably tell you that uh, Tim was my uh, master's thesis advisor at Western several, many, many years ago, but how many, <laughs> Oh boy, <laughs> who's this going to out though? Yeah. Tim or Tony? <laughs> a long, long, like, you know, a long, have long time Have we met ago. before? And I, I just forgot. Have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have, we've met. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, am sorry to have not recalled. Yeah, that's okay. That's uh, okay. Tony was on the head of the elder board for our church that got, um, uh, uh, Jay Warner Wallace, uh, over, uh, a couple years ago for the, for the, for your guys' conference. He was in the, yes, he was at that conference. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Great. Um, so uh, just kind of an open question, because uh, I'm, I'm really interested in how you got interested in the field of philosophy and apologetics. Well, I was always interested because Tim was interested and we talked, we talked all the time about all of these things. Um, Tim was interested in apologetics even before we got married. You know, when he was a, a, a teenager, an older teenager, when he first got into philosophy, he was uh, deeply inf- influenced by John Warwick Montgomery, mm. the Lutheran apologist, historical apologist. And uh, then there's a whole, whole long story that I won't go into, but we began writing philosophy articles, co-authoring them. Right. Um and that kind, <laughs> yeah, it was. I was interested in the topics, and I began doing research so that I could. I actually did contribute. Um, I was not just copy editing or something. We were actually co-writing these, <laughs> and um, you know, in epistemology and the theory of knowledge. And then we got interested in uh, something that Dr. Alvin Plantinga had done, where he had said some negative things about the historical. Uh, case for the resurrection, which kind of shocked people and people didn't know what to do because he was, you know, a very eminent Christian philosopher. And here he was saying negative things about the uh, argument for the resurrection in, in particularly in Richard Swinburne's formulation. So Tim and I got involved in writing and responding to what Plantinga had uh, said there. That brought us to the attention of William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland, which resulted in our writing on um the resurrection in the Blackwell Companion to Natural uh, Theology. And that's going back, I believe, was published in 2009, so more than 10 years ago. And um, so then we continued to work in epistemology. We ended up, I started publishing separately 
you know, articles that I published on my own. And I have quite, quite a long curriculum in philosophy, particularly in formal uh, philosophy and the analysis of testimony independence and that kind of thing ad hocness, all kinds of things that are obviously very relevant to the gospels, very relevant to the Mm -hmm. gospels. Uh, But at the same time, he was researching, Tim was researching, uh, older apologists. He got a grant from the Templeton Foundation to research the history of historical apologetics. Mm. And so then we ended up bringing those together in learning about undesigned coincidences. And he taught me about that. And that got me gradually more and more involved in writing about the reliability of the Gospels. Mm. So that's like a very brief version of how this all went. There's a lot more detail to it. That's awesome. So uh, we're going to start with a hidden in plain view. And uh, starts asking a few questions there, and then we're going to move to your your other book, um, the Mirror or the Mask, and and we'll we'll end up with that book. So hidden in plain view, this is um, um, so, uh, the subtitle here is Undesigned Consequences in the Gospels and Acts. So tell us a little bit about uh, this book. You know what is an undesigned consequence? You know th- that that sort of thing. So an undesigned coincidence, I call... Oh, I'm sorry. Coincidence or consequence? Coincidence. Coincidences. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Co- <laughs> coincidence. Right. So you can think of it as like coming together. Um, every time I say this, some uh, humorous person will say, well, by definition, if it's a coincidence, it's undesigned. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but it's actually an older use of that word from... Uh, the author William Paley from the 1700s. And what he meant by a coincidence was a coincidence, a coming together. So an undesigned coincidence, I use, I, I like to call it a casual incidental interlocking that points to truth. Mm. So in an undesigned coincidence, you have two th- testimonies or documents that tell different parts of, of reality Uh, They don't appear to be trying to allude to each other, but they fit together. So I'll give a just a made up modern type of example. One person uh, claims to have witnessed a bank robbery and says the bank robber tripped on his way out the door. And another person claims to have witnessed the same bank robbery. And he says, and I noticed when he walked up to the window, his shoelace was untied. Now, that's an undesigned coincidence because neither of them mentions what the other one mentions. Right. Mm -hmm. But an untied shoelace could result in tripping. Mm -hmm. So they fit together in this casual, seemingly casual way that they're not trying to make it fit together. But uh, it does. It does fit together because they appear both to be describing the truth. So the coincidence has to do with. uh, uh wasn't uh, specifically uh, part of what was supposed to happen or something like that, right? It's kind of an accident kind of thing, right? Well, the undesigned is that they're they're not trying to make it come together. The right. coincidence is that they do fit together. They coincide. Gotcha. Gotcha. The, okay. um, the untied shoelace coincides with the tripping. It fits with it. Right. It comes together. It fits with it, but it's not uh, not designed to do so. So the second guy doesn't say, oh, I bet that was because his shoelace was untied. Right. You know, right. Because then then I mean, he might still be telling the truth. I'm not saying he's not telling the truth, but he's specifically referring to what the first person said. Right. So then it doesn't appear as undesigned. It appears undesigned when neither one refers to what the other one said. Right. Okay. 
I, I, I kind of view uh, what you cover here as uh, kind of our, our positive approach to uh, what we covered in, in uh, uh, Jason Lyle's book. Um, uh, it was keeping faith in the age of reasons where he, he takes these contradictions and say, Oh, look at all these contradictions and answers them. This is almost like, Here's here's two versions of the story as as uh, Jay Warner Wallace has talked about the the fact that we should be expecting this if if uh, we're talking about historical people uh, entering into to to a historical narrative and 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 relaying what what they witnessed um, and and this is uh, kind of putting putting the complete picture together. You take mm-hmm. the witness from this one and this one, and they're looking at it from the right side and the left side, and they're 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 bringing the whole picture together. And that's one of the reasons why we have kind of four gospels. And it's exciting because you can actually see how they confirm one another. Yeah. I really, I really want to go through your book and take little snippets and and do uh, uh, full videos on them. uh, Some of them were just a lot of fun to to read. So um, uh, what, what, what of yours have been um, kind of your favorite, which are the ones that uh, uh, you know, you either like personally or that you found within writing of your book, uh, hidden in plain view. Well, you know, C.S. Lewis said about um, uh, the novels of Dickens that his favorite always seemed to be the one he had read last. So <laughs> I, I feel that way a little bit about Undesigned Coincidences. My favorite is always the one I've, I've discovered most recently. You know, it's the one that then I'm that one's the freshest. It's the right. one I'm the most I- excited about. So um, I'm going to give an example that's not in uh, hidden in plain view. So Ooh, this I'm little add bit. this to the back of the book. Then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's going to be in, and I don't believe it's in the mirror of the mask either. It's going to be in the eye of the beholder, though, that I'm writing right now. So, in uh, Mark three twenty two, we find that it says that leaders and uh, messengers had come from Jerusalem to Galilee, and they were listening to Jesus teach, and he was casting out demons, and they said. You cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. So they're very hostile to him. And it's weird, you know, because in Mark, if you just read Mark, there hasn't been any conflict yet between Jesus and the leaders down in in Jerusalem. I mean, he's hardly been in Jerusalem that we've seen. We haven't seen him in Jerusalem hardly at all. And here they are. and, and, And Galilee was not right next door. You know, it was a good 70, 80 miles in in Michigan terms. Imagine walking from here to Grand Rapids to go give some guy a hard time. Basically. <laughs> OK, you know, it's just like, why would you do that? OK, it's very it's very complicated and confusing uh, as to why they were so hostile. But when we go to John and we go to John, two, we find Jesus cleansing the temple early in his ministry. And he's a little cheeky. They go up to him and say, give us a sign by which you you will show us that you have authority to do that. They're like, who do you think you are? You know, throwing out these merchants and so forth. And he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up, which is not really the answer they were looking for. You know, (laughs) so the idea, I think, is that they sent messengers then, you know, when he went back to Galilee, they sent messengers going, go check this guy out. You know, he's he came and he caused a disturbance in the temple and they're already very negatively inclined toward him. Okay, they're going to try to find something to to use against him. But what's interesting is that some scholars will say that John moved the temple cleansing, that Jesus didn't didn't cleanse the temple early in his ministry. 
But this undesigned coincidence actually shows that he did cleanse the temple early in his ministry. And there, there are many other indications that he did. This is just one small part of the case, but that he appears to have already had a clash uh, in Jerusalem, specifically with the Jerusalem leaders. So their messengers are mentioned in Mark uh, as coming all the way to Galilee to uh, investigate him. And, and so um, we also see that these aren't just uh, time people locations, uh, but these help to also establish things like the miracles. And one, one of my favorites was the, the healing of, of, of the guard's ear that Peter cuts off. Can you talk about that one a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, John tells us his name was Malchus and we find that um, Peter draws his sword, cuts, cuts off his ear. And then in Luke, it mentions that Jesus healed it. <clears throat> Luke is the only gospel that mentions that Jesus healed it. Um, and then you go to John and you have this dialogue between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. There are multiple undesigned coincidences confirming that dialogue, which mm. is really interesting because people will say, oh, they must have been alone. And actually, it doesn't say that they were alone. It just says the leaders did not come in for fear of, of ceremonial defilement. It doesn't say they were completely alone. But um, Pilate asks him, uh, are you the king of the Jews? Because, you know, it's this accusation against him, as we learned from Luke. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I would not be delivered unto the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Now you think about that right there in John, his servant was fighting. Peter was fighting. He cut off Malchus's ear. Right. You would think, why would Jesus like bring this up? Why would he bring up? My servants would have been fighting. And if you're just reading John, you just read in the previous chapter about the fighting. But if you go over to Luke, you find that he healed that guy's ear. <clears throat> so imagine if Pilate had gone and said, you know, was there any disturbance or any problem when you arrested this man? Yes, sir, there was. One of his followers cut off somebody's ear. Uh, okay, can I talk to him? Uh, <laughs> what are they, they going to say, right? Yeah. Um, his ear looks fine to me, Pilate yeah. is thinking, right? So they're obviously not going to bring that up. So Jesus knows that he has shown his peaceful intention. He knows that by healing Malchus's ear and telling Peter to put his sword in his sheath, he has shown that his kingdom is not of this world. And so he's not taking any real risk in, in saying that. So that's an example of an undesigned coincidence concerning a miracle. Yeah, yeah that's really good. So, so we have this issue then and um, with regard to John's Gospels and the other three Gospels, right? You, mm -hmm. kind of, you kind of alluded to that a little bit there. It's called the synoptic problem and John is kind of, you know, a guy on his own kind of deal. Can you kind of explain what's going on there and how maybe, uh, you know, undesigned uh, consequences can help us with regard to this issue? Right. So there's there's two different things going on. The, the synoptic problem, which I like to call the synoptic puzzle, concerns which of Matthew, Mark and Luke was written first and who's dependent on what. And uh, undesigned coincidences are relevant to that. But I won't uh, I, I want to get to John. I want right. to get to talking right. about John. So I won't pause and talk about that. I have an entire PowerPoint on the synoptic puzzle and undesigned coincidences, which is cool in and of itself. Um, but it. It is true that there's a lot of overlapping material in these synoptic gospels, whereas John's 
material tends to be unique. He has more unique material. Um, in my forthcoming book, I call him the red-headed stepchild <laughs> yeah. of gospel scholarship. He looks so bad for John. <laughs> he looks different. He looks different, right? Oh, you don't need to. John can take care of himself. Man. <laughs> anyway, um, but that he looks different. And people will say, you know, why is everybody down on John? And I'll say, because he's different. You know, and part of what's very interesting there is there's a kind of inconsistency in scholarship. On the one hand, they will make much of the idea that Matthew, Mark and Luke are not all independent of one another, that there's some kind of a dependence relationship there that's very difficult to work out exactly what it is. The most popular view is that Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke are both using Mark. Um, so they're recognizing that their selection of material, especially their selection of material, and sometimes even their very wording is, is copied, okay, that they're not just totally independent. I think they are partially independent, um, even, in, even in similar incidents, but they're not, they're not. And if you come along and imply some kind of independence between them, you'll get kind of sneered at. Like, don't you understand that the synoptic, we scholars understand the synoptic gospels are not independent. But then when it comes to John, it's this amazing switcheroo. Uh, I have actually had a very famous scholar, uh, Craig A. Evans, in a debate that I had with him two years ago. He said, I'm counting votes and it's three to one against John. Now, my jaw just about dropped <laughs> when he said that because you don't get to count votes. Yeah. <laughs> When they're not independent. I mean, this would be like if three people went into the when it went into the voting booth at the same time and consulted with one another. Like, who are you going to vote for? I don't know who you're going to vote for. Right. <laughs> and then you said, oh, they all three, you know, decided that this candidate stinks. It's like, well, they were, you know, influencing each other. Yeah, right. Yeah. OK. So especially if we're talking about questions like uh, material that John includes that the others don't include or how Jesus sounds the idiom or um, what sayings we have sayings of Jesus that are not in the others. Obviously the other three gospels are influencing one another. And I think John is uh, consciously supplementing. I believe he had access to at least some, if not all of the synoptic gospels. I think he had read them. I mean, I'm going to just go that far and say that because his was the last to be written, he said, well, I'm not going to do the Garden of Gethsemane all over again. That's been done already. OK, I'm going to do it different. I'm going to talk about something different, you know. Um, and so I think he had a very self-consciously supplementary um supplementary goal okay and i think that takes care of a lot of this yeah. a lot of this concern that john is the only one and once we also reject the argument from silence and my husband tim has a professional paper this isn't even apropos of the gospels though it, it is relevant on why the argument from silence is so bad <laughs> especially when it's used especially when it's used against testimony. I mean, there are arguments from silence that are good. Like, for example, I don't see a dragon in this room. That probably means that there is no dragon in this room. You could call that an argument from silence, right? The fact that I don't see a dragon. That's because dragons are extremely large and I would probably see one if it were here. But I don't see a spider in this room. That's probably not a spider. That would be a very bad argument. 
right? Because right. spiders are very small. Right. Okay. And particularly if one of, if my husband walks so we, in. We would expect you to see the dragon if it was you, there. We wouldn't necessarily expect you to see the spider. That's exactly right. Unless if it's a spider right. dragon. <laughs> it, now, if my husband, all the more so, if my husband walks into the room and he says, uh, oh my goodness, there's a spider over there. And I say, I don't even look, you know, I say, no, there isn't. I didn't see it. When I came in, okay, so what am I doing? Now I'm using the argument from silence against someone's testimony. Mm -hmm. And so when John testifies that Jesus, for example, said before Abraham was, I am. He's the only one who does it. And the skeptic scholar, Bart Ehrman, will go on and on and on. Why isn't that in the synoptics? If he really said it, why is it in the synoptics? So what's he doing? He's using the argument from silence against testimony. Mm Because John records it. It's like, well, John records it. Right. You know, why didn't they record it? Well, John records it. You mean everything has to be recorded twice? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Well, well, where's that rule coming from? My goodness, if you required that, we'd have very little history left. It's just not true that everything has to be recorded twice. So your theory is that John, who wrote last, right, uh, was familiar, read maybe even the other Gospels, and he deliberately and consciously decided to add things that they didn't have. I think so. Yeah. And to not restate uh, the only the only miracle that is in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5000. And he does have the additional material about mm-hmm. it. But most of his his miracles, I believe all his other miracles are unique. Yeah. You know, you can see him. You know, why didn't they tell about this? Oh, man, I got to be sure to <laughs> sure to write that. You know, I want people to hear that story, you know. Yeah. So so then it would be. Given that, it would seem like it would be rather difficult to find undesigned uh, uh, coincidences with regard to John and the synoptics, right? And yet we have more of them in John (laughs) than in any other gospel. It's astonishing because what this shows is that you have to, you don't necessarily have to have them telling the same incident. Now, I gave an example of that a little bit ago. When I gave the business about the cleansing of the temple, having an undesigned coincidence with the Beelzebub controversy, who would have thought? Mm. I mean, isn't that just beautiful? Mm-hmm. You know, that you can have these um, undesigned coincidences. Or, for example, when uh, Jesus says on the night, so they, they all tell about the night of the Last Supper in some form, but they don't tell the same things about it. So um, Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. He says that in Luke. They have been fighting about who's going to be the greatest, which they did repeatedly, actually. And Jesus begins chiding them that whoever is greatest among you should be the servant of all. And he says, who who is greater? The one who reclines at the table, because that's how they ate, they reclined, or the one who serves, is it not the one uh, who reclines? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, if you just read Luke, you'd say, well, um, he is reclining at the table. What does he mean? He's yeah. among them as the one who serves. And if you stop to think about it, it's kind of odd. Um, and in fact, Dr. Uh, Michael Lacona has suggested that Luke moved the argument, the dispute. <laughs> over who will be the greatest to that evening. It didn't happen that evening. Um, but when we go over to John, we find that he washed their feet. So now we have an idea of what he means 
by I am among you as one who serves. And you can imagine, you know, John describes that foot washing, you know, blow by blow. I think John had quite a visual memory. Yeah. You know, he he rose and he removed his outer garment and he girded himself and he took water, you know, like blow by blow. And you can picture them all just kind of looking in silence. And then he sits down, you know, and he says, OK, boys, let's take this from the top, <laughs> you know, because he's saying something similar to what he said to them before. And then he says, you know, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but it shall not be so among you. And then he concludes with, I am among you as the one who serves. So that's an example where they're telling two different things. Luke of the dispute, John of the foot washing. And yet, because John gives the new material, he's able to uh, fit together like puzzle pieces with yeah. the synoptics. And we can understand, obviously, the Luke account now way much more as opposed to being puzzled about what Luke is talking about. Right. Exactly. They explain, you know, they explain one another. We can even look at it as a kind of undesigned coincidence in the other direction. That The reason Jesus washed their feet that particular night was because they were fighting. You know, (laughs) like what gave rise to that? Why on that night? Well, because of this this bickering, you know, they wanted to do an object lesson. So they they just really fit together extremely well. It's 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 a very cool thing. We find uh, the way I put it is the more John tells us, the more he is confirmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I do like, you know, he's he's writing later. And so. You have people that aren't named in in the earlier ones, uh, and they're named in, in John. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they've died, or you know, it, we we have to uh, look at the history and say, you know, persecution is still happening uh, to this this group of people. And uh, just looking at the history within that first century, I think also helps explain that I don't think Bart Ehrman deals with all that much, or or he doesn't deal with it in an honest way. You know, I think uh, some scholars, skeptical scholars in particular, will say that adding names is a sign of embellishment. So they'll say, well, if there are more names in John, then that means John is, uh, you know, he's just trying to make things more interesting. And we do find that in the Gnostic or the like the later Gospels, um, the non-canonical Gospels, like the infancy uh, things that are made up, they'll name people like, for example, they'll invent a midwife when Jesus was born and give her a name and that kind of thing. So that kind of embellishment does occur. But actually, what's interesting is you do have this kind of scatter pattern, which I like. So it's, for example, in Mark that we hear that we hear about Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus cross. And he's only mentioned in Mark um, or Bartimaeus, for example, a lot of scholars think Mark was first. He's only named in Mark. And then uh, Matthew tells us there were two blind men and he doesn't name either of them. So it's kind of cool the way you get these interweaving patterns. And I like to say that we need to recover the notion of casualness and the casualness of what is what's called salient or, you know, comes to mind of a given author and how valuable that is to historicity. People tell you things just because they thought of them. (laughs) <laughs> you know, how often do you notice that with your yeah. friends, yeah. right? They're not bringing something up for some heavy symbolic reason, but just because they happen to think of it. And I think we see that with names in the Gospels a lot. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and, and your book is is kind of split up here into two. One is uh, Hidden in Plain View in the Gospels, and then the other one is Hidden in Plain View in Acts and the Pauline Epistles. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, uh, we understand the, the, the importance and the differences. Um, what... 
what do we see in Acts and the epistles? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, th- th- there there's uh, always talks, uh, and there, there has been for uh, uh, at least two thousand years of which letters are Paul's. D- does mm-hmm. does uh, hidden um, uh, undesigned con- uh, uh, coincidences d- does that uh, help us with establishing maybe uh, what uh, what some scholars think is uh, non Pauline that they are, and and how does this also um, affect our understanding in Acts? Right. Um, yes. As a matter of fact, and there's a book I want to recommend. It's free because it's uh, not, you know, it's very old, so it's not incorporated anymore. And it's called the Horai Paulini, and that's H-O-R-A-E, and then Paul, P-A-U-L-I-N-A-E. Um, and it is by William Paley. He is the man who invented the phrase undesigned coincidences. And that book does a lot with Pauline authorship and uses undesigned coincidences to establish Pauline authorship. Um, Now, what I just chose to do in Hidden in Plain View was to take them and use them even more to establish the historicity of Acts. That's just what I chose to do. Um, for length and organization purposes, I think people who read it can see how they're also relevant to Pauline authorship, but there are more. I mean, literally in terms of numbers of them, there are more that I didn't include that help to establish Pauline authorship. So get hold of the Horite Pauline uh, if you're interested in even more. Now, as far as part acts, two of this book? Part two of this book for acts, for sure. <laughs> and then Horite Pauline for Pauline authorship. For sure. And then you'll get in the whole fascinating thing of the chronology of Paul's ministry, which is just a fascinating question uh, in and of itself. And there's a huge literature on it, but I I enjoy looking into that. Um, How do they establish acts? Well, by establishing that its author knew of Paul's movements, his associates, his travel, Um, And the events surrounding his life, but establishing that in this extremely subtle way. So here's one of my my favorites in Acts that I'll just give as an example. In Acts 18, uh, Paul has come to Corinth and he makes tents part of the week. And then he um, it says on the Sabbath, he was, you know, in the synagogue telling that Jesus was the Christ. Um, But it says when. Uh, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. He became, and then it's this very odd phrase. I don't even remember how it goes in the Greek, but different translations translate it differently. The New American Standard translates it completely devoted to the word. Mm. Okay. Um, Completely devoted to the word, testifying that Jesus was the Christ. Well, Paul, my goodness, he was always completely (laughs) devoted to the word. And this is Paul we're talking about, very zealous person. What is that about? It's really weird. And what was it about their coming? You know, is that just a chance connection that the author is making? Or was there something about their coming that caused him to be completely devoted? When you go over to 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending himself that he never has taken money from the church at Corinth. He's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, I never took any money. I didn't burden you. He said, I robbed other churches to minister to you. Paul's always a little dramatic. You know, he didn't really <laughs> rob other churches, but that's how he likes to put it. And he says, and when I was with you and was in need, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Now we can put these together that they may have brought money a donation from Macedonia. 
And notice he doesn't even name them in the epistle, right? But Acts names them as Timothy and Silas. He's been, because he's been sending Timothy and Silas back up and down <laughs> north and south through Greece. It was hard being they, Paul's they friend. They were young. <laughs> Man, he would be like, go back. Now come back. Come after me as quick as you can. Well, go back and talk to the church of Thessalonica, you know. Um, so anyway, so they come to him. And if we conjecture that they brought money, then he would not have had to make tents as much because it's just mentioned his making tents. He could do more preaching. So that's one of my favorites. And that's how the Acts ones seem to go. They're very subtle like that. And I I like that. I think that's even in some ways stronger. So the devotion there then is that he could devote all of his time or the majority of his time as opposed to making tents. Yeah. To, to, to the ministry. Yeah. Yeah, he had the thermometer and he kept drawing lines. All right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, he, yeah, his thermometer was for that uh, thing he took up, that collection he took up for the people in Jerusalem. You'll remember he mentions mm-hmm. that over and over again in the epistles. One of the remarkable things is that Acts never mentions that collection. Mm-hmm. And yet Acts describes all the places that he went where he was taking up the collection. So you can follow his journey in Acts, okay? And it's the same journey that you can follow in the epistles where he's taking up the collection. But Acts doesn't mention the collection, but it mentions all of the the locations. Now that's, I find that extremely cool. At this point, I can place in the book of Acts, uh, let's see, which books? First Corinthians, second Corinthians, Romans, uh, first and second Thessalonians, I would say Galatians, but that, of course, is a huge controversy as to where you <laughs> place Galatians, as you probably know. But I would say I, I think I know where he wrote Galatians. But the others I can place sometimes to the very verse in Acts, but Acts never mentions him writing the epistles. Mm-hmm. But I can do that by these undesigned coincidences, by the yeah. connections between the epistles and Acts. I, I really like how uh, I, th- I think there's a line in this book that says uh um, that uh, Luke j- gives us just so many details that it's just o- almost overbearing. But yet, Scott, uh, we we would almost want more looking at it today. But if you were reading mm-hmm. back then, it's like, right, Luke, we got it, we got it. What's what? Why are you writing this two thousand years later? And, and we're we're like, uh, why isn't Luke mentioning this or this or this? Tell us more. <laughs> Even some really weird uh, uh, details. One that I call an unexplained allusion, and that's a new kind of uh, evidence that I talk about in the Mirror of the Mask. Positive evidence. He says Paul cut his hair at uh Sancria because he had a vow. Now that's right. like right near Corinth. We don't exactly know. I mean, when you look into Nazarite vows, you're actually supposed to cut your hair in Jerusalem. So why is he cutting his hair in Greece? Because he has a vow. What's this about? Luke does not try to explain it. In fact, Luke was probably a Gentile. You can picture Luke. So Paul cut his hair in Greece because he had some kind of a vow. You know, and he writes it down because he knows it happened, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't understand it. So he doesn't try to explain it, but he's just writing it down because it's true. And there's all those kinds of things. And this this is a little bit off topic, but um, I've I've heard the explanation before that Luke and Acts are kind of Paul's court documents uh, that that are, are to be brought before. Uh, Caesar for his trial. Would 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 you say that may hold as a, a legitimate theory? I wouldn't think Luke would be as relevant to that, 
um, acts would seem to be relevant, showing his peaceful intention or defending him and so forth. Um, I, I do think that acts was written at a time when it potentially could have been used in that way. On the other hand, I pictured Paul is a very independent sort of person who would have probably wanted to stand up and give his defense orally <laughs> rather than saying, hey, you know, bring these documents uh, kind of thing. So that would be just a conjecture. Um, but they, they certainly are written by the same person that I would definitely say. And it is a close companion of Paul. Just uh, summarize uh, a little bit for for um, hidden in plain view. Um, sure. are, are there are there main groupings or, or you know, kind of how um, uh, 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 th- there are the errors in the Bible. You can kind of say, oh, this is a time and place one. This one is, you know, uh, a narrative. This one is uh, theology based. Um, are, are there like main groupings that, that, uh, that, that people can kind of look at and see um, uh, what, what these yeah. design con- uh, coincidences are? There are, and you, you can choose your groupings. Now, as you can see from my uh, table of contents in hidden in plain view, I organize them by books. Right. So one of the ways that I organize them is I say, what explains what the synoptics explain John. John explains the synoptics. The synoptics explain each other. And then I have a miscellaneous, you know, others in the Gospels, you know, (laughs) that I couldn't bear to leave out, you know. And then I have uh, Acts and Paul's undisputed epistles and Acts and Paul's other epistles. I wanted to be really clear. I was not conceding that Paul didn't write those. I actually think. Paul wrote all of the epistles attributed to him uh, in in the Bible, but I just thought that my reader my readers might be interested in that organization, so I chose to organize it that way. So there, I organized it by books. You can also organize them by um, what they confirm. So, for example, they might confirm a single event. They might confirm details of events, or they might confirm a fact that stands behind. Uh, a group of events. So for example, the one I just gave about the brethren coming from Macedonia, what's the fact that stands behind? Well, hypothetically, and I think, I think it is true that they brought him money. So we conjecture that fact, neither of the documents states specifically that, you know, when Timothy and Silas came, they brought Paul money. And that is why he stopped uh, making tents and had more time, etc. We conjecture that. So we think of that as a fact that stands behind. So we can categorize them by what they confirm or by or by books or by what explains what. And then we can mix and match these categories. Very neat. Very neat. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed reading this book. Like I said, I, I almost viewed it as a a a. a uh, a, a positive approach to those uh, those tensions within within the uh, within the New Testament, and so well, one of, yeah, one of the things I tried to say there was, you know, in this book, I'm not going to talk about alleged contradictions. I do talk about those in the Mirror of the Mask, mm-hmm. but I said what I want to do is have us not miss the forest for the trees. Before we look at alleged contradictions, let's look at some of the positive evidence yeah. for the reliability of the Gospels. And then when you get that as your background, then I think you should be more open to harmonizing the alleged contradictions because you can say these look like reliable uh, witnesses. Mm-hmm. And then when you have reliable witnesses, it's only responsible to try to harmonize what they say. Yeah. And um, I, I would refer people back to our interview with Jay Warren Wallace, who also talks about this. Uh, the, uh, this book is, is, uh, leads us into your next book in that um, uh, these undesigned uh, coincidences help us to establish 
the New Testament as a historical narrative or, or, or lend to the fact. Um, and, and then in your book, uh, The Mirror and the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices. And up next is Sylvester Stallone and Cliffhanger. Oh, wait, no, we're ending on a cliffhanger. So next week's episode, we'll pick back up with Dr. Lydia McGrew's discussion on her book, The Mirror of the Mask.